0: Get your advanced PhD in WoW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles, it's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Modern life has given us a lot of convenience. With the tap of our smartphone screen and without ever leaving our house, we can order a car to our door or a hot dinner or even replenish our toilet paper supply. And right now, you're listening to this podcast, How and When You Want To. Yes, life is good in the 21st century, but what if there's such a thing as too much convenience? What if it's actually enslaving us in some strange way? Well, that's what my guest today argues. His name is Tim Wu, he's a professor of law at Columbia Law school and the author of several books, including The Attention Merchants. And today on the show, Tim and I discuss the tyranny of convenience. We begin with a brief history of convenience, discussing how it became a driving force in the economy and in our culture in the late 19th century, and how Tim believes we're at the beginning of a second convenience revolution. He then discusses how convenience can make us feel more free and unique, but actually limits our freedom and makes us like everyone else. Tim then shares some ideas on how to inject some healthy inconvenience in your life for more happiness, freedom, and fulfillment. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is convenience. Convenience, where you find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. And Tim joins me now via clearcast.io. Tim Wu, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. So back in February, you wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times called The Tyranny of Convenience. I'm curious, what got you thinking about the implications of a culture and an economy like ours that puts a premium on making things as convenient and as easy as possible?
1: You know, I'm really interested in things that affect your life very strongly, but in a way are hidden or or less obvious. And one of them is, for some years now, has struck me as this kind of obsession with convenience that in its own way seems to rule our lives. And, you know, I, I kind of started to notice that what I like to call my preferences, uh, you know, I like to cook charcoal. We're being trumped by, you know, the idea that, well, yeah, but it's not really convenient. And so, you know, someone who's kind of interested in freedom and autonomy and, and things like that, I was like, well, you know, who's really in charge here? <laughs> is it me or is this like thing called the uh, convenience? Uh, I'll add to it. I think also. I've had the experience, and maybe other people have had too, where you have a lot of technologies in your life that are supposed to make everything really convenient, but somehow it doesn't quite seem to work out the way you think. You know, you have a microwave, and you have email, and you have text messages, and you have this computer. Extremely powerful, almost like miraculous technologies. But it's not like I walk through life like I'm on a cloud. Um, <laughs> and I was like, where did we go wrong somewhere here? So it was kind of... A, that sort of thing, like you know, where where is this utopia I was promised?
0: Well, isn't it? I mean, isn't it a drive for humans since like ancient times to you know use tools to make life easier? I mean, that's what makes makes us human, right? Like the you know the little hand tools you see about, from prehistoric man made that was that made things easier.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that, and so I, I don't in any way uh, think that I. Am against tools, I think that like all good things, it's kind of a question of, you know, doing it right. And so so I, I deeply believe that, you know, our tools are our identity. And I guess that's why I think we need to be more careful about it. I think that tools can expand who you are, how you live in different dimensions. And if you just reduce it to one dimension, i.e. making things more convenient then you miss out on a lot of what life offers. You know, just to give a classic example, if you're learning to play an instrument, you know, that's not exactly a very convenient choice. It's an important tool, you know, guitar, violin, or, or drums, but it's not going to make it easier to listen to music. Actually, if you want that, you can buy uh, yourself a stereo that kind of takes care of it. So, you know, there's other dimensions of our lives that are revealed by our choices and tools. And what I think sometimes is, is that we have kind of reduced ourselves, narrowed ourselves to this one axis. You know, does it make life easier? <laughs> does it kind of get me to my goal with less, I guess, time or or thinking or effort? And you know, if you start to make that your life, it becomes all destination, no journey. And frankly, I think you become a very, are in danger of of missing out on a lot of life and and becoming a narrow
0: person. Yeah, that's an interesting point you made earlier just now about how the tools you know they not only we they not only allow us to shape the world, but when we we use a tool, it shapes us as well. I think there's a phrase like the tool works at both ends, is one that I heard. So as you're using a tool, it's also changing you in a weird way as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, another way of thinking about it is that the tool is you and, you know, that we are kind of defined by it. But I also like your idea or, or the idea that it that it changes you. you know, I'm one of these people who thinks the, the goal of life is uh, self-development, uh, you know, finding out uh, kind of what you could be, building, building character, uh, so to speak. Speak. and there's no question that the, that the tool choice and tool usage is, is a big part of that and you know most of us realize that I think another reason I wrote this is I was thinking about the things that the tools I like best and you know they tend to be related to my hobbies I have a lot probably too many hobbies you know so like my hockey stick I like to play hockey I like to surf you know all these things that you know, the tool becomes so so important and frankly so treasured. Uh, yet we also spend an awful lot of time at work, and a lot of time, ta- a lot of time, you know, with other tasks in life, and and there we're kind of reducing ourselves. Now you know, obviously, there's certain things you can't always do, you know, the old school way, and maybe there's something about hobbies where we take more time for them. But I, I started to think there was something important about you know, living life the best you could in this whole question of tools. And frankly, the decision not to make convenience the overriding value in the choice of tools.
0: So we said, you know, humans have always been trying to make things easier, life easier with tools. But in the the piece you wrote, you argued that this like quest for convenience became like an obsession in the late 19th and early 20th centuries with sort of that second industrial revolution that occurred during that period. What are some of the examples of convenience technologies that popped up in this, during this time?
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. I think the convenience revolution, uh, as we, as we know it was born. And I think in a worthy way with the promise of liberation, I think frankly, that the earliest convenience liberation uh, even though this is the art of manliness, was directed mainly at women. There was an observation that, that women you know, spent most of their lives in drudgery, whether it was spending all day uh, washing clothing, cooking foods in incredibly laborious ways, or, or keeping a house clean. And one of the ideas is that women could only really become emancipated or have some life of their own uh, if they had tools that saved them labor. And so I, the convenience revolution frankly is born there. And I think these are, are its noble origins. I mean, there is something to be said for life that is something other than total drudgery. And that that's it. So so some of the conveniences in the that are the early the first generation are, are like the washing machine, the vacuum cleaner, the even things like basic cleaning solutions like Old Dutch you know, these were big revolutions. Uh, rolled oats, so-called instant foods, which are not really instant by our standards, but I guess just reduce the amount of time for cooking, uh, like pork and beans. <laughs> uh, these these were the big the big revolutions of the late nineteenth century,
0: and, and it continued though even through like the nineteen fifties. I mean, every, you look at these those mid-century depictions of what life would be like in the future. And it was just like this wonderful utopia where robots did everything. You know, you have the Jetsons where they have sidewalks that just move, you don't have to walk. I mean, they really thought this would be this like utopia and we'd be living in it right now, but it didn't turn out that way.
1: I think there was a period, uh, and I think it reached its apex in the 1950s, where the Future and the utopian version of it was defined by total convenience in all possible aspects of life, and uh, you describe some of them. But uh, some people may remember: it, you know, you push a button, your your food arrives. You push another button, you, you arrive at work through a teleportation machine. Push another button, all your work gets done. So you know, life becomes about uh, pushing buttons. In some ways, we kind of live in that era. I mean, you can push a button and something will be delivered. You can push another button and a message gets sent to somebody in Japan. You know, we, we do push buttons. But one thing we're starting to noticing is that sitting around pushing buttons all day does not make necessarily for the most satisfying life. And I'll add to it that there is a skill in pushing buttons repeatedly and multiply. It's called multitasking. And we are sort of in danger of becoming a society where the only skill that matters is multitasking, and the only way you live is you sort of decide that which will be done as opposed to doing it yourself. And, you know, that's, to me, a, sort of a diminished way of living. But it's certainly true that in the 1950s, you know, that was that was kind of the, the dream.
0: Yeah, so I mean, not only did people... I mean, even you even saw that in the Jetsons, where <laughs> sort of the shtick was, here they are in this utopia, but the technology like messes up their lives. You know, George, you know, gets caught in some bathing machine and it mangles him up or something. And it also just kind of feel unsatisfied with life. So not only is this, you know, convenience, like it's unsatisfying, but you also argue, and I think this is really interesting, is that convenience can actually end up enslaving us or limiting our choices. How so?
1: Yeah, I, when in the sense it ends up taking over your preferences. I, I want to discuss an example from the 50s. I think it was kind of a turning point. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't in the article. It was an earlier draft, which was the development of something called the, the baby box, or I guess the baby tender. Uh, there was a scientist named B.F. Skinner who is famous for his experiments on pigeons, and he was very caught up in the idea of the convenience revolution. And so uh, he invented this technology, which... Um, was supposed to greatly reduce uh, the burdens of childcare, especially for babies and toddlers. And so, yeah, basically, it was a box, and you put your baby in there. And uh, I guess it was warm, so the baby didn't need clothes, and you know, baby couldn't get that far, so it just sat in the box all day. And you know, you kind of put in food from a little little door or something like that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was sort of supposed to take care of all uh, of childcare. I think it had a little thing where you, the baby could drink if it wanted, uh, you know, obviously, obviously no breast milk, but
0: uh, oh, it sounds like a hamster. Yeah. A little like a hamster cage, I guess,
1: you know? And so, you know, he expected this was going to be his great, greatest invention and you know, expected to become a millionaire, but you know, lo and behold, it wasn't popular. Actually, he put his own daughter in it, by the way. Oh, jeez. She, she was the experimental uh, test subject, which you know is a dedication to science, which is uh, rare in our times but yeah, so so people weren't into it. It didn't sell well. I, think I actually it sold three hundred or so, which is actually a little more than I would expect, but no it didn't it didn't become a blockbuster hit and it, I guess that there was something in there, some lesson uh, there was other you know problems at the time instant cake mix, mix uh, wasn't as popular as people thought you know just add water, have a cake. and you know I th- I think that a little bit of this enslavement problem was sort of showing up. People were thinking, well, you know, there, there's some some parts of life that, that seem to be going missing here when it's only about convenience. And in some ways, parts of the counterculture were sort of about, well, you know, rediscovering this idea of um, having a, a human role in things. You know, it wasn't always articulated as anti-convenience, but, you know, when you think of sort of the some hippie dude living, uh, you know, in the woods, you know, without a, without a safety razor that, <laughs> that is sort of a rejection of, of conveniences. And so, yeah, I think, uh, I think there, there was a sense uh, that it contributed to the sense of being bound.
0: Right. Cause those convenience tools, in order for them to be convenient, you have to use them in a certain way. Right. So it strips you of agency.
1: Right. That that's right. It's sort of like, it, it is sort of the trump card. You know, if you only, uh, go places where the parking is convenient well then like suddenly your freedom of movement <laughs> has become constrained. There's, there's an example.
0: And speaking of these, uh, you know, reactions to these, you know, this first convenience revolution you talked about. You know, there, you mentioned one. There was one in the counterculture revolution of the '60s and '70s, where you had hippies going off to communes and growing their own food and making their own music with whatever. But I mean, you also saw this even in the early 20th, late 19th century. I mean, this is during that time. That's when the whole arts and crafts movement started, where people decided, I'm going to make my own chair and my own table and build it with my own hands. I'm not going to use this mechanized, mass-produced stuff. And we still see that today, that sort of ethos, like, I'm going to build a table by myself. Why? Well, because it's not convenient.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a constant kind of uh, counter-revolution, and I think it's noble. You know, uh, I think that uh, the human spirit rebels against kind of a, a loss of meaning. And yeah, I might say this later, but I think that uh, we are actually constantly fighting convenience, uh, but we kind of disguise it from ourselves by calling it our hobbies. you know, and so people people do something utterly ridiculous, like building a uh, a battleship out of plastic, which is like not convenient. You can order one from China at half the price or not even half the price at a fraction, but you know, you call it your hobby or you know you you ride a bicycle to work or something or or frankly most of the things that people think of as um deep in meaning are often kind of inconvenient although we're funny because we introduce conveniences in in our inconveniences so you know we'll play golf but you know i'm gonna play golf i I need to uh, (laughs) you know i want i want it to be convenient to play golf i want uh you know the driving range near my house the, the little balls just kind of Come up by themselves. You know, to pick them and put them up. But you know, playing golf inherently is not a, like what is playing golf. You're doing something inherently slightly ridiculous, although it, it's fun. So Yeah. So we <laughs> that, that that that's the
0: paradox. So you, the first convenience revolution, kickstarted in the 19th, early 20th century, went through the 1950s. You argue in the piece that we're in a mist of a second convenience revolution. How is this one different from that first one?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So you know. Uh, there was this movement in the 60s and 70s, uh, the 50s, too conformist. You know. We, we, we're not free to be us. And I think there was an important commercial reaction to the, those uh, changes. Uh, frankly, you saw it first in advertising when advertisers, for example, uh, companies like Pepsi, started associating their brands with freedom and, and the era of you know, long hair, do what you want, live a different way, you know, Pepsi. The choice of the pepsi generation so that started in advertising but then technologists kind of glommed onto this and said hey we know you want we want you want to be you but what we're going to do is make it more convenient to be you and you know i I would think one of the first great examples of this is the is the sony walkman so you know now you have this man walking down the street and he is kind of in his own perfect little bubble of self-expression you know he's listening to his jazz or maybe he's listening to black sabbath or maybe he's into 70s funk i'm not sure but you know he he is himself and uh, he's experiencing kind of pleasures that were previously only possible in his den Uh, but he's got his whole you know system with him and so Sony has now made it more convenient to be you. Sony has made your exercise of choice more convenient. And, and when you look at most, if not all, of our convenience technologies today, they're not actually trying to jam you, at least obviously, into some kind of mold. They're at least promising from the outset that, hey, I'm going to help you be you. So, you know, on Amazon, you can buy whatever you want you know, the original idea of Amazon when it was just books was, oh, you know, you don't need to just buy these bestsellers that are for the masses. You know, you can buy whatever strange book that really is, is all about you. And, you know, Google, you know, it's not like you're being pre-fed this feed of news from the media or whatever. It's like whatever you are, that that's that's who you'll be. And Facebook, I guess, was like, here's your friends and, and your network, Friendster before that. Uh, so So, but you can keep in touch with them know what they're up to you know without having to, to go hang out with them <laughs> so so that that's freeing and um and, and convenient
0: individuality let's put it that way but you argue that this convenience to be ourselves you know we think it's going to make us more unique and more individual but you argue that it ends up actually homogenizing society uh, how so yeah
1: i think it's like many things at the core, I actually do believe there there, there is some promise there. I, I, I think, you know, it has in some ways become easier to be you. I mean, yeah, let, let's face it. You can buy obscure, strange books and, on Amazon. I don't want to discount that. Um, you know, recently I got into sort of neo-Platonian philosophy for whatever reason, known <laughs> only to myself. And, you know, those books are kind of hard to find. But, you know, they all are on, on Amazon. Um, and uh, so there's something to it, but there is a strange counter effect where, you know, where even though supposedly on Facebook, everybody is like their own thing. We have a weird way of making this all kind of seem the same. And, you know, everyone's on Gmail and on Google. And for some reason, it has this kind of um, counterintuitive homogenizing power. And that, that's kind of one of it's almost like a mystery. I think that sometimes the the promise of individuality can kind of be a, a little bit of a mirage because at other levels, you are also submitting to a kind of conformity. And, you know, you have all the choices. I mean, just consider... Let, let's pick on Walmart for a second. So, you know, Walmart offers a lot more choices than uh, the general store in a small town, right? So in a way, they enable individuality but if every town seems the same you know and has all the same things then there's sort of a a grander homogenization that happens and yeah i think that's one of the real challenges in our era is sort of seeing through the idea that choice is the same thing as individuality and that you know self-development is nothing more than than exercising choice in the easiest way possible i mean we talk about this a bit later but there is something more there there there's a struggle i think that really defines character maybe you know relevant to this podcast has something to do with the development of manliness and uh, that is is missing
0: yeah i mean let's talk about that i mean so this idea i mean kind of what you're arguing is that in the piece is that struggle like you need to bump up against things that are frustrating and inconvenient and annoying in order to really truly develop yourself as a unique individual.
1: Right. You know, sometimes, I don't know if there are really any shortcuts in life. I mean, maybe there are some, <laughs> but uh, there's such a thing as sort of a cheap individuality, a, a superficial individuality, uh, and I think it's different than the real thing. And I think, the, I think what makes the difference is the, is the struggle. You know, because it's relatively easy to, to go out and buy clothes and look, look different than other people. But to to re- you sort of develop yourself into someone uh, requires, I think, confronting challenges and facing them in your own way and, and seeing where it takes you, uh, win and lose. It means having like lost in serious ways sometimes, but also having won and kind of follow the path that is a real path. And I I think the problem with convenience choices is they take that out of it. You know, I mean, I oversimplify that, but there's something that happens to you in climbing a mountain that doesn't quite happen when you get on the trolley. You end up in the same place, there's no question. But, you know, something about you has has become transformed when you you undertake a serious and, and challenging mountain climb. And yeah, that's maybe the best way I can, I can capture it. And the difference, you can call it the struggle. You can call it the confrontation of nature itself. If you're religion, religious, you might say you're encountering God (laughs) or God's limits. Those are, I think the most worthwhile of activities. The ones where you are actually facing nature directly, uh, seeing the face of it, either Seeing your own body's limits, maybe like in long-distance running. Long-distance runners, you know, understand and are intimately familiar with the ways in which their body starts to fail and starts to hurt. Or, or it can mean facing strongly and directly uh, just that strange, the kind of arbitrary and infinitely complex yet somewhat predictable nature of our. Na- environment itself (laughs) and you know and that is you know revealed any rock climber who has sort of struggled with gravity and the strange ways in which friction can can pull you up or not or anyone who surfs and and starts to develop a intuitive sense of of how waves work and and understand why one wave throws you on your face another one pulls you out um yeah, th- those aren't things that you click on M- on a on a button to get. <laughs> those have to be earned the hard way.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like this sort of I mean, we'll call it cult of convenience. It thinks what we really want is the end result, but in reality, oftentimes, what we really the thing that really gives us meaning and satisfaction is working towards that result. I mean, I've had this happen in my own life when I've accomplished a a, a big long term goal. I accomplish it, and then I feel kind of good, and then right away I'm like, "Okay, that was kind of disappointing. It wasn't. It wasn't as I didn't feel as good as I thought I would feel."
1: Yeah, I, you know, sometimes it can feel feel pretty good, but I agree. If if you sort of are fixated in that moment where you you get what you want, it doesn't last very long. <laughs> you know, if you think I keep going back to these hobbies, but like surfing, you know, you, you got to have some appreciation for the. Parts other than the moment you're on the wave, because that only lasts a second or two. Or, you know, another example is fishing. I like to fish, and you know, how often are you actually catching the fish? You know, most of the time, you're kind of sitting there. But people love fishing, love it, and uh, you know, uh, so it it does uh, something. And I think you're, you know, exactly right that somewhere in there is is uh, is uh, I, I, it might overstate it to say the meaning of life, but certainly some of deepest life satisfactions.
0: So you wrote a book a few years ago called The Attention Merchants. I'm curious, how do your thoughts about this tyranny of convenience tie in with what you wrote about in that book?
1: That's a great question I've never answered before. No, I think they're they're related. So that the Attention Merchants is about this resource called human time and attention. And basically the premise of the book is that our, our time and attention in particular are, are very valuable. They're, they're sort of the fuel by which we do anything or accomplish anything we really want to accomplish in life, which I think may, people might think is obvious. But maybe less obvious is the fact that we've somehow allowed the development of industries whose primary job is to take as much attention as they can from us, sometimes giving stuff in return, but sometimes it's not particularly a great deal you know, I, I guess that book was inspired by that experience, which I've had. And I don't know if your listeners have had, where you you know, sort of start to write an email. You have the idea of using picking up your computer, and you, you, you want to write one email, and then suddenly like two hours go by, and you try to figure out what happened. And I, I just feel there's an industry trying to suck out all of our time and attention from us without giving us enough money or anything else in return and, and taking something from us. So the question is, how is that uh, related to the, the culture of convenience, I think they're related in several ways. Uh, so, one is the sense that, in some ways, it is convenience itself that is the the, the weapon that leads us to allow our attention to be to be sucked away. Uh, you know, you sort of lose willpower. It, it becomes just how kind of much easier to sit around, uh, kind of do nothing, and so it's kind of a combination. And, and I think that kind of um, stagnation happens to a lot of people. And uh, I, think, I think they act uh, together. And I guess more broadly, re- they're related, I don't know, philosophically or in terms of what I believe in, in, in the sense that both books are all about trying to recognize you know, some of the forces that are in your life and trying to recognize you have to resist sometimes or make some pretty uh, hard choices if you want to be somebody. <laughs> You know, unfortunately, in the United States, if you kind of go with the tide, you'll end up in debt, overweight, you know, addicted to social media, sitting in front of the TV for, for 40 hours a week, and probably, you know, won't have a meaningful family life if you even have a family or any friends. So, you know, you, you actually have to sort of resist. And I think we've kind of created, maybe it's always been like this. I'm not going to pretend that there's been like some environment, you know, maybe ancient Greece where everybody like lived in in this kind of meaningful way all the time but uh, you know if you want to have a life of meaning if you want to be somebody you got to take uh, take charge and uh, both books are really about that process both books are designed to create citizens worthy of that title and in some ways restore us i think from the older traditions of of both the american republic but also uh, you know ancient ideas of, of what the meaning of life is
0: so let's talk about, you know, practical things we can do. I'm giving
1: some pretty big speeches here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fantastic. You've, you've me. you You are. You've inspired me with some pretty big speeches. No, no, no. I love <laughs> it. Thank you. I,
0: I am enjoying it. Yeah. Let, let's talk about some, some brass tacks thing we can do to resist this culture of convenience. So you, throughout the podcast, you've been mentioning your hobbies you take part in. And yeah. you argue that hobbies are something, they're basically inconveniences we do for fun. So you mentioned you fish. You surf, you play hockey. What are some other hobbies that you've taken up that are super inconvenient but give you a lot of satisfaction in life?
1: Yeah, I, I, um, I guess that's a great question. I'm a, uh, I have too many, actually. I guess I, I live by my words. So I don't know if it's quite a hobby, but I do cook uh, most of the food in our house. And I have two, two small daughters, and it gives me uh, satisfaction. Obviously, it's not the most convenient thing, uh, although I've gotten pretty quick. At cooking, I uh, as I said earlier, I like to surf, which is certainly not a convenient. Uh, I, I don't know if there's any substitute for surfing. It's sort of more of a of a pure hobby. I like sports like hockey. I, I like to sail, and which is certainly not the easiest way of getting from from A to B. And I like to. I have a we have a cottage, and I, I like to to fish, which is obviously not the easiest way to get food for your household in fact the fish don't always taste that good it's certainly not better than the ones you can buy so so yeah i kind of am, i'm always doing this now, on the other hand i haven't uh, you know when i wrote that new york times piece people reached out to me some people like rural idaho they're like you know you should live like we do we make all our own food we, you know chop all our own wood I, I do chop my own wood i enjoy that but in fact i think from your website i got some good tips from for for uh, using a mall. but I, I, I'm not at the extreme, uh, you know, I'm connected to society. I, here I am using a computer, you know, I have a, a smartphone that, you know, somewhat try not to let it take over my life. So I, I haven't really, com- I don't completely uh, live by, by this. I, I'm not uh, totally uh, rejecting all forms of, of convenience. I just think returning to what we were talking about earlier. I really do believe that, uh, you know, the choice of tools in our life and the way you spend your attention are like two of the most fundamental decisions you can make as to who you are and you know ideally they come together it's another way the ideas are connected is you know you want to use tools uh, devote your attention you have to tools which you feel uh, you know are character building or or do something for you and you you know when you're done with it you uh, you just can tell I, I don't know if if you're like me, but I think you can tell after an experience what effect you feel it's had on it. Some make you feel sick and sort of degraded and, you know, like, what was I doing? Sometimes feel like that after, after too much time on, on the web. <laughs> and other things, you know, sort of seem to bring you forward. I mean, a big one. I obviously spent a lot of time writing. And so the computer, I don't want to sort of just completely castigate the computer computer can actually bring you in in some important directions. You know, a a lot of the writing I've done, most meaningful writing was on, it's not like it was on some 1920s typewriter was on a computer. And you know, that has, has brought me a a lot of places. So, but that, that's kind of my, my prescription, I guess, if you want to put it, uh, put it together.
0: Right. I think this could uh, not only can you do this with your hobbies, but also with your relationships as well, maybe choose in more inconvenient way to interact with those around us might actually bring more meaning or satisfaction.
1: Yeah, you know it's funny you say that because usually when I you know wrote that piece in New York Times or some of the, talked some things and then I'll usually get an email saying that's a very male centric way to think about like tools is the only thing that matter in life. <laughs> what about your, you know what about human relationships? And I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it's a it's a little it's a little different, but I I do think um, some of what I said earlier. About convenience and the sort of superficial superficiality versus depth can can apply to your relationships. So, you know, when your relationships with other people, it's it's easier to keep people in arm's length. It's kind of more convenient, and uh, some people it's necessary even. But uh, you know, there is something to be learned from being in the same physical space as other people and just sort of being fully exposed to. All of what they are. I, I can't, I, you know, would be lying to say that that is a painless process. In fact, it can at times be compared to that mountain climb I was talking about. Uh, and anyone who's been in a long marriage knows that there are periods of, of serious suffering uh, for most of us involved. I don't, uh, my, my wife is a lovely person. We're, we're deeply in love and have a happy marriage. But I, I would be lying to say that it's, you know, uh, been like, into the world world blender all the time. You just push a button, everything works great. Um, no, it, it's challenging. But, but I think it's basically the same principles. And in fact, you're being closely involved with another uh, human per- person is a lot like what I was talking about. It is uh, very coming very close to, to a direct encounter with nature itself. You know, It's not like you're hacking through the jungle with a machete. But in some ways, uh, it's sort of the human version of it. You're kind of navigating the challenging project of coexisting with other people who actually have their own consciousness, their own preferences, their own lives, and don't necessarily know everything you do. And I can't say uh, I'm the most successful at that, but it's certainly uh, something that makes life worth it.
0: Yeah, it takes skill. And whenever you, I've, I've had those experiences where you've had a deft, Social encounter and it feels fantastic. Yeah, compared to you know just sort of sending a text message, it's there's something yeah something more grittier about it that makes makes it more fun. I don't know if that's the right word. I
1: mean, I'll add something. I don't. It doesn't have to all be sort of dark. I I I take a lot of times. I you know I like going out for drinks with my friends. That's like one of my hobbies. Maybe I should have said that earlier. We have a couple bars we like to go and we go there and we drink. I don't know to excess, but we, we like to you know drink and just talk about whatever and you know that kind of human experience there's no replica for it you know sitting in a kind of quiet bar bartender friendly bartender not too crowded not screaming and just like chatting about whatever with with your drinking buddies i think like that is that is to me close to a religious experience is uh (laughs) <laughs> as blasphemous as I right. may sound <laughs> you know and the hours you know it's it's going well you know hours kind of drift by but that, not in a way like on tv or facebook like what am i doing it's more like this is just 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 the core of of, uh, of living so yeah, I think I think uh, I, I seek out those kind of experiences, and uh, you know they're, they're available
0: to us. And, but here's the thing: you have to be intentional about it because the, the 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 tide wants to make things convenient for you, so you have to actively resist it. Yes,
1: that, that's right. I, you know, I think we have an environment which kind of through the force of convenience, it's an invisible thing. It's so alluring. That, that, that's what's so interesting. But it's not like you know the old idea totalitarian government putting you in prison it's more just like you you coast along easy street you make all the the easy decisions you know you, you kind of eliminate difficulty in your life and next thing you know it's like well have you really lived and it's so interesting you look back at your life and what kind of parts of it that mattered or or and you know they often involve certain as i've said before certain levels of 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 pain now they can also involve deep elation as well but uh, you know our, our tendency to try to avoid the highs and the lows or avoid the highs because you're afraid of the lows yeah it's not worthy of a of a society of a country that's supposed to be the home of the free and the land of the brave or maybe i got that backwards <laughs> but uh, yeah i think courage has really gets get some into the the greek virtues that we sort of lost our our our, our courage along the way and yeah. I think that's a big part of this.
0: Yeah. Well, also another virtue we've lost is phronesis, that sort of practical wisdom. like You know what to do in whatever situation because you've developed your judgment through direct experience. Right. Well, Tim, this has been a great conversation. Is there anywhere else people can go to learn more about your work?
1: Well, I have the, the book that you described, The Attention Merchants, which is available at all fine bookstores. And I'd I, I'm not offended if you wish to click one button to buy it on Amazon. And uh, I guess you go back and read that article Tyranny of Convenience which is on the New York Times and I don't know. Just you know do a couple searches and I, I'm always writing stuff for the, for the Times and I always
0: write new books so uh, th- there you have it. There you go. Well Tim Wu, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> My guest today is Tim Wu. He's the author of the book, The Attention Merchants. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about his work at timwu.org. Also check out our show notes at aom.is convenience where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. And if you're looking for a way or a systematic way or a program to help you inject some healthy inconvenience into your life, check out our membership program, The Strenuous Life at strenuouslife.co. That's what the whole premise is designed to do. It's designed to inject some inconvenience or as we call friction into your life a little bit more difficult so you can find that fulfillment that you get that tim was talking about so check it out strenuouslife.co we've had over three thousand people sign up and hope to see you there as always thank you for your continued support And until next time this is brett mckay telling you to stay manly walmart plus members save on meeting up with friends